Well, congregation, last week we began looking at a very interesting but important question. Uh, That question is, what does baptism actually accomplish? And I want us to remember at the outset of this message the answer that I proposed. I said that baptism initiates a covenant relationship with the triune God and with each of the three persons in particular. I mentioned that there are three different aspects to this covenant relationship and that each one corresponds to one of the three persons of the Trinity. So as this relationship pertains to the Father, it is adoptive by nature. As it pertains to the Son, the relationship is marital. And as it pertains to the Holy Spirit, the relationship is ministerial. And so depending on the particular angle that you take, the particular perspective that you have, baptism is an adoption, marriage, and ordination ceremony. Baptism at one and the same time is an adoption and marriage and ordination ceremony. Now, if you think about that, you'll you'll see why, you know, there was a good reason that I wanted to separate these three considerations into three separate messages. And not only does it help me to speak to each one individually, and it allows me to elaborate on them a little bit more going into greater detail, but it's also because all of the analogies at some point will break down when you try to mix and match them together into a single picture. It's very difficult. Because sometimes the Bible refers to the church in masculine terms. The Bible says we are the sons of God. At other times, it refers to the church in feminine terms. It says we are the bride of Christ. And so instead of trying to force all of these things together into one single picture, it's best for us to just consider them one at a time. And this is what I meant last week at the beginning of our message uh, when I said that the question, what does baptism actually accomplish, is not an easy question to answer because there is more than one right answer. And this is why I also said that the subject of baptismal efficacy is like a well-cut diamond. It shines from many different angles and how we answer the question then depends on which angle we decide to take. Well, today we're moving on to the second part of this three-part series, and we are now going to consider this question from the second perspective, and that is that baptism is a marriage ceremony of sorts. And today what I want to do is I want to present this material in three parts. So I'm going to give you three points that are going to make up the outline, and then we're going to walk through these three points one by one. First of all, I want to show that in the Bible, the relationship we have with God in Jesus Christ is of a marital nature. That one's fairly easy, but that's where we'll start. Second, I want to show the connection between marriage and baptism, both in Scripture and in Jewish history. And then third and finally, I want to provide us with some guidelines, maybe some clarifications, some exhortations about how we should think about this relationship we have with Christ in terms of objective and subjective realities. 
This is what we covered at the end of last week's message. So covering it again, I think, is going to be helpful for a lot of us. Now, I know that sounds like a lot, and uh, it, it may be sort of a lot. Uh, but each one of these points builds so naturally on the point that comes before, uh, I think you'll be able to follow this almost seamlessly. So looking at the first points, uh, this is the one that most of us already know. And we know it from well-known passages in the New Testament, especially Ephesians chapter 5, where in verses 22 through 25, uh, here's what the scripture says. It says, wives... Submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. And then it says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. So that's a very well-known passage, but as we develop this, the very first thing that we see is that in some sense, the relationship between a man and a woman is a great picture of Jesus Christ and the church. It's a great picture of the relationship that we have with Christ. So when we look at what the Bible actually teaches Uh, We see that one of the main ways that it describes the church is to say that she is, collectively speaking, the bride of Christ. In Revelation chapter 9, verse 7, it says, Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And, you know, when you see that language, I think it's important for all of us to know that this is not, in fact, a new relationship that sort of just pops up in the New Testament. This is not anything new in terms of biblical revelation or redemptive history. And we know that for a couple of different reasons I want to cover with you. A very, very important lest we drift off into dispensationalism. And uh, here, are the, here are a few reasons. First of all, the church is not a New Testament phenomenon. Some people think that, you know, for all of Old Testament history, there was this organization called Israel. And then when we get to the New Testament, all of a sudden there's a new and separate entity that we call the church. The fact of the matter is that kind of bifurcation is a false reading of Scripture. The church has always been in existence since the very first day that God has been calling sinners back to himself. This means that Adam was in the church. Eve was also in the church. Abraham was also in the church. And yes, even Moses himself was a member of the church of Jesus Christ, even long before Jesus ever came into this world. In fact, if you uh, just think about what Stephen, the deacon, you know, Stephen, the first martyr of the church, said to the unbelieving Jews in his own day. In Acts chapter 7, you'll remember that when he mentioned Moses, he said in verse 38 that this is the Moses who was with the church in the wilderness. And the word for church there is ecclesia. It's the same Greek word that's always used for the term church in the New Testament. 
So the church has always been there. The second reason we know that what I'm saying is true is that this is not a new relationship with Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus Christ has always been the savior of his people. And that was true no matter where his people happened to be. Jesus was the savior of his people when they were still in the garden with Adam and Eve. Jesus was the savior of his people when they were still dwelling among tents with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or even when they were gathered together on Mount Sinai to be sprinkled by the blood from Moses and Aaron. In all of these cases, the relationship between Jesus Christ and his people was already in existence. We just heard from Revelation 9, verse 7. I just read it a few minutes ago that the marriage is called the marriage of the Lamb. And that should give you a clue. The marriage of Jesus Christ is called the marriage of the Lamb. So when you hear that, all you have to do is remember that Jesus is the Lamb of God who was slain from the foundation of the world. Every time a Lamb appeared on the scene of redemptive history, every time we see a Lamb in Scripture, that is a picture of Jesus Christ to remind us that Jesus is the Savior of His people. And he's the only savior of his people. So that's very important. The church was in existence from the beginning and Christ has been the savior of the church from the beginning. And therefore, by the time we get to the New Testament, we cannot think that this relationship between Christ and the church is something new. It's not. The Bible says that there is only one body and people of God. The Bible says that there is one Lord There is one faith. There is one baptism. So this is why when you read the scriptures, you see all through the Old Testament descriptions of this relationship, many times stated in marital terms. It's because it's the same relationship and it's got, it has continuity from Old to New Testament. Let me just give you a one passage because this will set us up for the next point. We're going to roll right into the second point off of this passage. The most vivid depiction of the relationship between Christ and his people in the Old Testament is found in Ezekiel chapter 16. Very, very important. The entire chapter gives the history of God developing his relationship with his covenant people. So the whole chapter is dedicated to the marital theme. The Lord in that passage is confronting his wayward people. He's confronting Jerusalem. Because Jerusalem has turned away from the Lord. And Jerusalem has been committing idolatry, which is spiritual adultery, just like a woman would turn away from her husband and commit adultery today. Now, the passage is way too long for me to read the the whole thing. But what I want you to see is this marital theme and how it runs throughout the entire Chapter, so I'll give you some of the salient details. First of all, notice that in Ezekiel 16, the Lord is calling his people to remember how their relationship first began. And by the way, every time he refers to the people, he refers to the people in collective as her, as a woman. So here's the imagery she was living in an unclean state. Her life was full of false worship and pagan practices. And the Lord describes her as naked and out laying in an open field. 
living in open shame. But then at some point, the Lord himself says that he passes by. He passes by this woman. He has mercy upon her, and he decides to set his love upon her in particular. And he decides to take this woman unto himself in marriage. In verse 8, he says, when I passed by you, I looked upon you. Indeed, your time was the time of love. So I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness. Yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you and you became mine. That's beautiful language there. But here we can see that there's an engagement taking place. There's a covenant vow and oath that is taking place. Now, later on, when God marries this woman, uh, we see how that relationship plays out. In verses 10 through 18, same chapter, we see that he clothes her in beautiful garments. He decks her out with silver and gold and all manner of precious stones. In verse 19, we see that he brings her into his own house, that she eats bread at his own table. Because he talks about my food, which I gave you, the pastry of fine flour, oil, and honey, which I fed you. And then in verse 20, he even mentions her children in very interesting terms. He refers to them as your sons and your daughters, whom you bore to me. And then in verse 21, when he mentions how she sinned, so grievously and sacrificed her children to the false gods of that land, the Lord says, you have slain my children. So the picture here is very vivid, but it's, it's absolutely clear. This relationship between the Lord and his people is of a marital nature. There's a covenant that was made and she came to live in his house and she came to eat bread from his table. And when she had her children, he refers to them as my children, these children whom you bore to me. Now, the next question that we have here is moving to the second point. How do baptism and marriage fit together? And we can see the marriage analogy very clearly from the text. But where does baptism come into the picture? Well, if we just stick with this passage that we're looking at right now, Ezekiel 16, then the answer is found in verse 9. Because right there, after the Lord swears to marry this woman, and just before he gets her all dressed up in the clothing of her wedding garments, he says in verse 9, Then I washed you with water. Yes, I thoroughly washed off your blood, and I anointed you with oil. Here we have a clear reference to the baptism of God's people. And we know that it's a clear reference to baptism because it's here where this woman is washed and prepared to be presented for the wedding celebration. She's washed and she's prepared to be presented for the wedding celebration. And if you have a question thinking, well, when did that ever take place in the history of God's people? Um, the answer is not very hard to figure out. This chapter just took us from the time of Abraham when the, first, when the Lord first proposed to the woman, seeing her laid out in the open field, he mentions her parents. 
And those are the tribes that precede the covenant from which Abraham came. He brings us from the time of Abraham now to the time of Moses when the Lord married his people in a covenant bond right there on top of Mount Sinai. And so as you think about that, it fits perfectly with the washing in between. He makes his covenant promise, then he washes his bride, and then he presents her to himself on top of Mount Sinai. So then the question is, how is this washing a baptism? The answer is that when the Lord brought his people out of Egypt, the very first thing he did was baptize her in the Red Sea. Israel's in Egypt. And when the Lord brings her out of Egypt, what does he do? He opens up the Red Sea. She passes through. And the Apostle Paul says, in that very act, the Lord was baptizing the entire nation. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. Paul says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So there you have it. You see how marriage fits with baptism, but the picture's not complete yet. So just to round off this second point, I want you to see how when we get to the New Testament, the connection between baptism and marriage, well, it's still intact. And there's two passages I want to show you to appreciate the emphasis here. Uh, you, should, um, you should know that by the time we get to the New Testament, there was a custom, a tradition, and a practice that had developed in Israel. And what was this custom? Well, this custom was something that we call the mikvah. And the mikvah, very interestingly, refers to the ritual purification of a bride-to-be. It's a, it's a ritual washing, a ritual purification that the bride-to-be would undergo just before the wedding ceremony. And we don't really know how far back this practice goes in Israel. I was reading something this morning, and it was saying, like, maybe to the 2nd century, 3rd century B.C., uh, they discovered, archaeologists discovered this mikvah location. So these, these, you go down these steps, these stone steps into these like basement looking caverns of, of the earth. And there's pools of water down there. And you can tell by the decorations that this was a Jewish uh, baptismal font, if you will. They're called mikvahs. And so when you, when you see that, you recognize that this is essentially a bath for the bride-to-be to prepare her for her marriage. And you could read about this on Wikipedia. It's just, it's just true historically. So we don't know how far back the practice goes. But I would, uh, I would suspect that this practice in one way or another was born out of a reflection of the theology that was attached to the Exodus. Because this is what God did for his bride, brings her out of Egypt. She's full of blood. She's full of idolatry. And he has to cleanse her from her idols and wash her from her blood. And he did that in the Red Sea so that he could bring her up to the top of the mountain, enter into a covenant with her, and she could become his bride. Now, we get to the New Testament You've got the theological background of the Exodus. You also have the Jewish custom already several hundred years in practice called the mikvah. And now we come to the ministry 
of Jesus Christ, which follows on the heels of the ministry of John the Baptist. We've got a whole baptizing ministry here, so let's see what the scripture shows us. Well, first of all, uh, let's go back to Ephesians 5 in your mind. Because the first passage you need to think about is Ephesians 5, which I already read a little while ago. But yet, if you notice, I did stop reading that passage in verse 25, which really just refers to the sacrifice of Christ. It says that Jesus Christ gave himself for the church. He laid down his life for the church. He loved her and he sacrificed himself for her. So that's what we would call redemption accomplished. That refers to the cross. But then in verse 26, we go from redemption accomplished to redemption applied. How does God apply the grace that was earned by Jesus Christ on the cross? How does he deliver that grace to you in particular? So listen how Paul describes all of that, starting in verse 25 and going through verse 27. He says, husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her so that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water with the word, so that he might present her to himself as a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Jesus died for the church so that then he could call the church and he could cleanse the church and then he could present the church to himself as a washed and clean and purified bride. When he washes her, he takes away her sins so that now she has no spot, she has no wrinkle, she has no blemish or any such thing. So this is a great picture of what he does for us in the sacrament of holy baptism. The second passage I want to show you is found in John chapter 3. Let's go back to John the Baptist. Because this is where John the Baptist is with his disciples and, you know, his disciples come to him and they start to complain about Jesus. Do you remember that? His disciples are complaining to him about Jesus. Very interesting. And um, I think the reason they started to complain about Jesus is they started to get a little bit jealous for John's ministry. John had been baptizing this entire time. Multitudes were following John. They considered themselves to be disciples of John. And then the Pharisees come up and they start to have a dispute with John's disciples over this topic of purification. Probably the question is, who really has the authority and who really has the right to purify God's people? Is it your master, John? Or is it this new one who just rose up across the river, Jesus of Nazareth? What's really going on here? So look at, uh, look at John chapter 3 and look at verse 22. Then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. And they came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan about whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. Your numbers are shrinking in your church, John, and the numbers are increasing in the church across the river. Well, then in verses 27 through 29, 
we see how John answers, answers them. It says, John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. And then he says this, he who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. Notice how John explains exactly what's going on here. And he does so by using the marriage analogy. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. You see, the reason I was baptizing the people is that these people are the bride of the bridegroom. Me? I'm just the bridegroom's friend. I'm just happy that he finally showed up. And now I rejoice to know that the bride is actually going to the bridegroom. And yes, I served a purpose for a while. I was washing the bride to prepare her for her husband. But how glorious is it that now the bridegroom is washing his own bride? So all of these little strands come together and you think to yourself, whoa, there's a connection here between marriage and baptism. And it's the same connection that we've seen throughout the scriptures. But notice this, the two passages that we looked at. One was from Paul in Ephesians 5. The other one was from John the Baptist in in John chapter 3. Notice that they're really doing and saying the same thing. They have the same theology. But they're speaking in two different directions in terms of their reasoning, in terms of the implications. You see, John, in John chapter 3, he's speaking in the context of baptism. That's what's going on. But then when Jesus comes up, he moves the discussion over to marriage. Interesting. In Ephesians 5, Paul is in a context of marriage. He's talking about husbands and wives and households and children. But then when he brings up Jesus, he moves the discussion over to baptism. He says that Jesus is the one who gave his life for the church so that he might also be the one who sanctifies and cleanses her by the washing of water together with the word. So you can see these connections in scripture and now we're done with point two. As we come to the third point, I wanna say a few words about the objective and subjective realities that are in play in this covenant relationship. Because honestly, this is where a lot of people will stumble. They will hear everything I said, but then their questions, the ones that they're asking, are not the questions that the Bible is asking. So it's hard to answer these questions because they're out of category from where the Bible brings us. So a lot of people will stumble in their thinking here. So think back to the sermon last week about adoption. And let's make some comparisons. Just like last week when we were talking about adoption, I said your baptism was your adoption ceremony. Well, this week, what I want to say is your baptism is your marriage ceremony. So just as you were adopted into God's family and you became his son, so also you were united to Jesus Christ and you became his bride. However... 
It's also important to remember that even though adoption and marriage are two different covenant relationships, there's a lot that they have in common. Just like adoption, marriage has the power to change your identity. We all know that. But also, just like adoption, marriage does not promise to change your heart. We also know that. Let me take a few minutes to unpack that. This is, this is where the theology matters. First of all, marriage does in fact have the power to change your identity. And when a man and his fiancée show up at the church on their wedding day, uh, they always come in as two single individuals, right? I mean, they haven't been married yet. So they come in as two single individuals. Uh, they're members of two different families. They live in two different homes. And they bear two completely different names. Unless, of course, they're like Chris and Claire, and then both of their names are already Smith. <laughs> But that's very rare. <laughs> Mostly, they, they, they come from two families. They live in two different homes. They bear two different names. However, by the time those two people leave the church that day, they are united together in what we call the holy estate of marriage. And the question is, how did that happen? The answer is, it happened by virtue of the marriage ceremony. By virtue of the wedding ceremony, their identities have been changed in real and significant ways. Each of them now has a new set of concrete relationships, not just with one another, but with countless other people as well. Together now, they have new privileges and new responsibilities, and today they can do things together that just the day before were sinful and morally unacceptable, and I'm referring here to the honeymoon Things changed. Their identities have been transformed. Now, it's true that a marriage is not a sacrament. We're not, we're not relating marriage to baptism as if there was a one-to-one -one correlation. Marriage is not a sacrament. There are two sacraments in Christianity, baptism and the Lord's Supper. But at the same time, marriage does give us a really, really good picture, biblically speaking, of what baptism is and what baptism is accomplishes. How does baptism work? Well, you see, baptism is a divine ceremony. Baptism is a God-ordained ritual that changes the objective status and the objective identity of the person who is baptized. So now, just like the newlywed, those of us who were baptized have been grafted into a new set of relationships and circumstances the difference, of course, is that we now have access to all the privileges and responsibilities of the covenant of grace. So being united to Jesus Christ, we've been brought into the household. We now eat the same bread and drink the same cup at the Lord's Supper. And now, let us not forget this important part, as we continue to grow as the people of God, Jesus refers to all of our little children as his very own. But here, I don't want you to miss the other point, because this one is very, very important. Just because you have been baptized does not mean that heaven is guaranteed to you. That's very important. Just because you've been baptized doesn't mean that heaven is guaranteed to you. And so the second thing here is that even though baptism, just like marriage, 
Uh, just like adoption has the power to change your objective identity, it does not promise to change the subjective condition of your own heart. Remember last week we saw that a little boy can be adopted, he can receive a new father, he can be given everything that he needs to flourish, including love and grace, instruction, support, provision, and yet it's still possible for that boy to grow up and not love his father in return. Well, in the same way, a woman can be married, receive a new godly husband who provides her with everything that she needs. He can love her and cherish her. He can defend her and protect her. And yet it's still possible for that woman to turn away and not love her husband in return. She can grow to refuse his love, despise his word, and decide that she no longer wants to give him the honor that he deserves. This is very possible. You see, the dynamics here are really critical to see. Marriage provides us with a lot of different possibilities when it comes to the love in a person's heart. So sticking with the woman here, we can say that it's possible that at the wedding ceremony, true love is already present. But it's also possible that true love is not already there. But maybe by God's grace, over time, that love begins to develop in her heart. That's also possible. And yet, sadly, it's also possible that the love that's necessary for a strong, healthy, and fruitful marriage is not there and ultimately never develops in her heart. So that one day, maybe after many, many years, the heart of that particular woman begins to manifest itself for what it really is. She begins to live on the outside what she has been on the inside. But here's, here's the point. When that happens, her husband does not get to say to her, well, now I can see all things clearly. I know what's really going on here. The whole time I thought we were married. But now, based on what you've done to me, I realize that we were never truly married. He can't say that. That doesn't work. The woman and that man are truly married. And we know that because on that day, there was a real covenant transaction that took place and their identities were changed. The problem is not that this woman wasn't truly married. Covenant is real. The problem is that she turned out to be an unloving and unfaithful wife. She might be an adulterous wife, but she is a wife nonetheless. Now, that's a sad situation, but again, it fits perfectly with the sacrament of baptism. The fact that your baptism unites you to Jesus Christ does not mean that you are automatically guaranteed to be the faithful Christian that he has called you to be. And this is why when people in the church go astray, the very first thing we do is call them to return to their baptism. Because it's real, and it should be used to grab their attention. 
we remind them that it was then and there that they were washed by Jesus Christ. It was then and there that they were clothed by Jesus Christ. It was then and there that Jesus took them and said to them, objectively speaking, covenantally speaking, I love you and you belong to me just like he did with Israel and just like he does with the church. But you know, the good news of all this is that sometimes that really actually makes a difference. When we bring people back to their baptism, sometimes it really just wakes them up. They never thought about how much they were blessed by God in and through the sacrament of holy baptism. What was God saying to me in my baptism? They never even think about it. They just think it's a symbol. (laughs) Just a symbol. It's just a picture. It doesn't mean anything. God's not speaking in this thing. He's not entering into a covenant with me in this thing. It's just water. Just a ceremony, just a ritual. Was your marriage just a ceremony, just a ritual? Covenant is real. It makes these people realize that they're being called to love God because he had first loved them. And when that happens, there's repentance that takes place. There's forgiveness that takes place. There's cleansing and true reconciliation. And yet, one last point before we close, just like there's no need to ever be married again when you repent, so there's also no need ever to be baptized again when you finally repent and return to your one baptism. It's the beauty of it. It actually lasts. (laughs) The Bible says that there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, And congregation, that one baptism is sufficient for the whole of your life. That's what it means for any one of us to return to his baptism. Just like we might call a person to return to her wedding vows, so you too can return to your baptism to receive a new and fresh application of the cleansing of your sins. Amen.